0: All right, good to see you guys. Take your Bibles, and we're on the last verse of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Chapter 4 is a really heavy chapter, but uh, chapter 3 ends with uh, what many believe is a, a hymn that was circulating in the early church, and that Paul basically brings that hymn up here. We don't know that to be the case exactly. The reason we don't know that to be the case is because we don't have any extra biblical writings that uh, show us that this hymn was in use before Paul wrote 2 Timothy. So it's impossible to know that. Uh, the hint we get that this is a, possibly a hymn that Paul incorporates into his epistle is the first words of verse 16, by common confession, Right? So he's saying, hey, by common confession, so, uh, you know, some commentators will state, hey, this was a common confession in the church that Paul is using. It could be, though, that Paul is speaking of the the essence of what Jesus came to do and so forth and summing it up as this is a common confession, right? Either way, this became a very, very, uh, this became a hymn and it's been sang and used ever since Paul wrote the words down. We know that for sure. So that's pretty cool. But By common confession, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. And the word mystery there is musterion in the Greek, musterion. It's not like you would think, you know, of a mystery where, you know, you got to, and I try to, sometimes people see the word mystery in the New Testament. They're like, oh, it's something that you really can't know. And they don't realize a lot of times the word, the way God used the word musterion in the New Testament is something that was not clearly revealed in the past, but has been unveiled and explicated to us in the New Testament. Something spiritual that we could now wrap our brains around because we get revelation that God hadn't given. And if you've read the Scripture, and hopefully you're reading the Scripture, even if it's your first time making your way all the way through the Bible, I challenge you at the beginning of the year to start in Genesis and just go all the way through in a year or thereabouts. If you're just making any progress, keep doing it. But you'll notice that God uses progressive revelation, right? Just like if you have children, you know, you don't explain to them when they're a year and a half old in the height chair what it means to drive and how they're gonna, you know, what to do with the car when they get in, especially these days, because cars may be way different, you know, when you know, fifteen years later when they're finally driving. But you you progressively reveal more and more to them. Well, God's a father, he's a perfect father, and he uses progressive revelation. But the mystery he's talking about in the New Testament mysteries, when it talks about these mysteries, Paul is basically explaining something. He's telling us this is what the mystery is. And we know that between the mystery of the church, for instance. It was hidden in the Old Testament times. The prophets had prophesied about it to a degree, but they longed to look into those things they were writing about. But he says great is a mystery. And that word great in the Greek means sublime, wondrous, beautiful. It's me be translated important, vital. Uh, it has a sense of beauty and power, but also uh, the idea of being something that's important as well, often when it's used. So, you've got this important or great, wondrous, beautiful, sublime mystery that we ought to know about. And he calls it the mystery of godliness, the mystery of what it means to, to be godly and to live a godly life and how our lives hinge upon whatever he's going to mention next. And he states what this is. And there's just a handful of lines, half a dozen lines. He says, by common confession, verse 16, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was what revealed in the flesh. If you have King James, uh, most scholars believe that uh, the where it states, you know, where it states literally in the King James that you know God was manifested in the flesh, and I memorized that as a new Christian, but uh, people dispute that uh, that as coming much later uh, than the first uh, editions or the first, uh, the oldest manuscripts. By common confession, greatest mystery of godliness, but we, we know that Jesus is God throughout the scripture. We've, if you've been at Blessed Hope long, amen? In fact, the very scripture right there is about Jesus, right from Titus chapter 2, 13 and 14, right? Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our what? Great God and Savior. Great God and Savior. Who? Jesus Christ. He's our, he's our God, our great God, and our Savior. So the scriptures throughout the, the Bible have affirmed that Christ is God. But uh, here, the, the focal point is, the, the object here is Jesus. And the confession is this. He who was revealed in the what? First thing he says, he was revealed where? In the flesh. In the flesh. He, he, he's God and he became a man. And then the next thing he says, he was what? Vindicated by or in the Spirit. Next, seen by angels. Next, proclaimed among the nations. And that's still happening, man. Jesus said his name would be proclaimed everywhere and his name is proclaimed everywhere <laughs> like no other names, like no other name has ever being proclaimed, amen? amen? So already in the first century, his name is being proclaimed, believed on in the world because it's not enough that his name is proclaimed. If you're going to be saved, you have to put your faith in him. And the last thing he says is taken up in glory. Now, that's pretty awesome. Because there's all these, there's like six different things being said about Jesus, and this is a common confession, Paul says. And it could have even been a baptismal, baptismal confession. Again, we can't prove that, so what we can do is say, hey, it's, somehow it somehow was a common confession, and it could, like I said, be summing up a, a statement of a declaration of faith. I know when Steve and I baptize people and we do baptisms in the ocean, uh, if you were baptized, you'll remember that you you made a confession of faith, right? We explained what baptism means and what it is. We do it on the beach usually. We just had one at a swimming pool recently. Uh, Thanks again, Peggy. That was awesome of you guys. We had a good time. It's beautiful. Uh, But what we do is a proclamation of faith. And sometimes if you're watching, you may not be hearing it because the waves are crashing all around you, right? Or around us. And you guys are kind of kicking back in the sun, relaxing, saying, I'm glad I'm not in the water, maybe. So the kids are wishing they were in the water. Some of them are in the water. But what I will say a confession, and I'll, I'll say a confession very similar to this. You know, if you're going to put faith in Christ, you're going to make a public confession, and I'll say something like, "I believe that Jesus Christ is God." And the person will say, "I believe Jesus Christ is God." And then I'll say, "And that God, as God, He became a man." That's repeated. They lived a perfect life. That's repeated. He went to the cross. That's repeated. He died for my sins. He rose again. He ascended up to the Father, just like we read here. He's taken up to glory, right? And, and then we'll also make statements like, you know, I renounce my former sins. I renounce my former lifestyle. And I accept forgiveness. Or, and I'm saved by grace through faith, you know? Uh, the whole nine yards, so to speak. And uh, because the scriptures say, you know, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you confess him as your Lord, right? You'll be saved. And then, and then there'll be the baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, So there's a proclamation here of faith, and certainly in the early church, second, third century, really early on, you have some very interesting statements of faith that that Christians would make when they talked about baptism. Uh, Now, this this was a problem I had in getting ready for this, you know. It's only one verse, so I thought, man, you know, I could probably cover that verse pretty easily in one evening. Jimmy, why are you laughing? (laughs) Why is everybody else laughing now? And as I got through this and I worked on it, uh, I I worked on coming in the flesh toward the end. I I worked on other things before I got, and I went back up to manifest in the flesh. And then I thought, Lord, there's so much I want to say about that in the context of 1 Timothy. It'll blow you away when you think, when you see the bigger picture, okay? And that's what we come, we have a Bible study. We study the word, amen? Amen. So we need to just Say two or three verses, have a few stories. See you guys. No, we want to be transformed. We want to know God. We want to know his word. We want to know what he's saying to us. We want to understand. He's, have, has it, he's given it to us for a reason, amen? And then as we look at it, man, may the Lord challenge you because I got through that and I looked at my page numbers, you know, I'm like, man, okay. I think when I was all done, I had like, if I think of it in my mind, you know, it was like 19, 20 pages. I'm like, Lord, I'm not preaching this whole message. I'm going to just preach the flesh part. The first part. And then next week, we get together, Lord willing, uh, I'll preach the rest of it. Because, and by time, I might give you a little quiz at the end, so pay attention, you know. I don't usually put people in the spot and say, now you have to answer this question. I use it's voluntary, right? But, uh, because you want to learn. And when you look at what's going on, when Paul says, the first thing he says is, he who was revealed in the flesh. Amen? He was revealed in the flesh. Okay. And that comes right after he's talking about God, the household of God. So I do believe, the, I believe, I do believe that he is referring to Jesus as God here in verse 15. It's talking about being of the household of God. And then he, you know, uh, linguistically, it doesn't have to mean that, but it's just interesting. Uh, he was revealed in the flesh. Aren't you glad he was revealed in the flesh that God became a man? Amen. You know, remember... Guys, remember the guy who's like, hey, you know, it's enough if you just show us the Father. Remember? And what did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? And it's interesting. That's in John chapter 14. And then he goes on to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me and so forth. Now, it's interesting. He was revealed in the flesh. And this might seem like just very simple, very basic, but it's critical that you understand this. Because if you don't believe that he came in the flesh and that he revealed himself and you believe that he was just a wispy spirit, you know, or a concept or something like that, you can't be saved. You see, because 2 Corinthians chapter 11 warns, right? That's that passage you hear me quote sometimes because it's such an important warning in the days that we live in. Where Paul warns, I, 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 he says, I'm concerned. You know, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy he says, I'm concerned that you'll be deceived from your simple devotion to Christ and believe in a different Jesus. Receive a different gospel. Receive a different spirit, right? Then a few verses later, he goes on to say that for Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. So it's no wonder that his servants transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. So we're supposed to test everything. Paul says, test everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Remember the church of Bria. The Bereans, chapter 17, verse 11, they were considered more noble than the, those at Thessalonica because when Paul shared the word with them, they received it with readiness of mind. But they didn't say, oh, what you say, Paul? It says they searched the scriptures diligently, right, to see if what he was saying was true. That means they went to the Old Testament to make sure Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Now, it's important that we know who he is because you can believe in a different Jesus. Now, right here it says he came in the flesh. But there were those already at that time period that were saying, you know what? Uh, You know what? He actually didn't actually become flesh. Or when he rose from the dead, it wasn't a physical resurrection, you know? He was just spiritual. Like, for instance, the Jehovah's Witnesses today. The Jehovah's Witnesses for years have taught that Christ didn't rise bodily, that his body was just... And then you say, wait a minute, it says right here that he appeared to his apostles and said, you know, to Thomas, stick your fingers in my wounds. And they say, oh, well, he manufactured a fake body to make them think it was him, to show them that he was still alive. What? (laughs) It's absolute nonsense because you can't see that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, Jesus says, destroy this body in three days, I will rise it up. It wasn't a different body. But the problem wasn't the Jehovah's Witnesses back then. They didn't get their existence until... Charles Taze Russell and before, you know, Charles Russell and then Judge Rutherford after him, succeeded him uh, until, you know, just a couple hundred years ago, guys. Not even 200 years ago. That's a Johnny-come-lately cult, you know. So what we're talking about is uh, what was called proto-Gnosticism or incipient Gnosticism. The Gnostics uh, would be more full-blown in the 2nd century, not long after this was written, uh, in the 3rd century. The biggest opponent to the early Christian church was Gnosticism. And I don't think it's an accident that Paul here is emphasizing this common saying among the early Christian church. And it's important that you realize how how important it is that Jesus Christ, that God became a man. So a lot of times people get mixed up on that. They think, well, God became a man and he kind of left his deity in heaven. That's the kenosis theory, right? That he emptied himself, so really he stopped being God, and he just became a man. Well, if he stopped being God, he wouldn't be who he is, amen? He wouldn't even be the same person. But the scriptures tell us that he didn't cease to be God. What he did is he added humanity to himself. He's 100% God and 100% man, fully human, but also fully God. Try to do that math, by the way. In theology, it's called the hypostatic union. You don't want to deny his divinity, you don't want to deny his humanity. He took upon himself human flesh. Now, it's really interesting here because when you look at these this passages and you consider it, uh, it's fascinating because you want to ask, okay, why did he become a God? Why did he become... And by the way, was it... Did God really become a man? Yeah. Philippians chapter 2, okay? Verses 5 and following says, let this mind in the King James be in you, or let this attitude, N-A-S-B, this translation I'm using, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I mean, he, he, it says it, to, to not just serve your own interests, but the interests of others. I mean, don't be selfish. And let this attitude of this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God. Okay? He existed in the form of God? How many people can, Who I mean, how many, how many can exist in the form of God? One, because Isaiah 43.10. By the way, show this to Jehovah's Witness because you know the verse they love to use? They get their name, Jehovah Witnesses, from Isaiah 43.10, which says, you are my witnesses, saith Jehovah, in their translation. That's where they get it, Jehovah's Witnesses. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, whom I have chosen, right? Before me there was, and it says this, before me there was no God formed, before me there's no God form; neither shall there be after me. Woo! Man, that's true though. Yeah, absolutely. But here in Philippians 2, you can show the Jehovah Witness, but here it says Jesus was in the very form of God. Yet there no be no God formed before him or after him. So he is God. It says, let this mind or attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, the NIV says in the very nature of God. Wow. And Paul says in Galatians what 4.8, there's only one God by nature. Uh, he exists in the very nature of God or the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to he could have just said oh, I'm just going to stay here and be God up in heaven man but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant It was made in the likeness of a man and died a death and it says even the death on the cross amen so we're, we're definitely told that God became man <clears throat> over and over again now, why did he do that? Go to Hebrews chapter two. Hebrews chapter two. I love this. Go to verse nine. just you know, God, through the author of Hebrews, spells this out pretty good, and we see this elsewhere in Scripture as well. But Hebrews chapter two, verse nine. But we, we do see him that's Jesus, who was made a little what? who is made for a little while, okay? He's made for a little while, what? Lower than, Lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So angels are created higher than us as human beings, yet the Bible says that they're higher than us. It warns us not to revile angelic majesties, Second Peter 2 and the book of uh, Jude, but here it says, because they're higher than us, but here it says, he, Jesus, was made a little what? Lower than angels. Namely, Jesus, because of what? The suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might what? Taste death for everyone. So he, was, he became a man to taste death for everyone, to pay for the crimes that we've committed against God, that our consciences bear witness against us that we've committed against sin, that we commit as God and against other human beings. But there's more to it. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might what? Render "Render powerless him who had (laughs) the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 15 and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. So human beings. He, and actually it's kind of interesting because even Gentiles are now heirs of Abraham through faith, it says. Now it's fascinating here. He became a man. Why? To deliver us and pay for our sins The human race actually tastes the death, it says in verse 9, for everyone, right? Not just the descendants of Abraham, but for everyone. Why? So we could be set free from the fear of death. That's one thing, one of the applications I had on my resurrection message, we had a couple, was that last Sunday or the Sunday before that? That was the Sunday before that, right? Uh, When I did that, one of the applications was, wow, as Christians, when you really look to Jesus, you don't have to fear death, you know? We're invincible in Christ, He's neither height nor depth, nor principality or power, neither life nor death. Angels, it says, cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. If you're in Christ, you're invincible in Him. Now, outside of Him, like I say, you're like a piece of tissue paper before a flamethrower. You're nothing, man. It's not because we're anything, but it's because He's everything. Amen? Amen. And this, this passage here, verse 16, is really about the majesty of God, the majesty of Christ that God became a man, amen, and it magnifies him. He's the center of our theology. He's the center of our very lives because that's, where, that's why, you know, uh, you can have confidence. Now, the world, they don't know Jesus. They have a fear of death. They don't even know why, a lot of them. But in Christ, you don't have to have the fear of death. Doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you're facing death, that you won't have times of trepidation. Doesn't mean that you won't have... Uh, Uh, some fears and so forth. But the more you look to Christ, the more you look at his promises, the more you put faith in him and his words, amen, Amen. the greater assurance and the more peace you have. Amen. Amen. Doesn't mean there won't be a wrestling match either. But so many Christians, a leading scientist, uh, very, very famous scientist, uh, was in a couple of the governmental, uh, I don't, I agree with him in certain areas, uh, for sure. But he's a professing Christian, and he actually was the main guy that headed up the genome project. Headed up the genome project, and was uh, what well, was a health, the leader of the health department under Obama. Then worked for Trump for a while as well. A Guy by the name of Francis Collins, uh, and I saw him speak. I was actually invited with him and just by with my you know number, probably 15 people, to hear him speak uh, when he was still under Obama. He said he couldn't say much. But it was interesting to hear his testimony. And uh, I don't know where he is at with God because I've got some concerns about certain things uh, as far as where he was at with certain issues and stuff. But I don't want to get into all the minutiae. But he said that he was just astounded by the lack he was taking care of a lady in the hospital. And she was just totally fearless with regard to death and witness to him. And of course he said he couldn't deal with, he knew deep down there was morality, good and evil. It bore witness, he had a conscience. He had no explanation. Science didn't explain those things. It drove him to the Bible. Eventually he says to Christ, and I hope, you know, he, uh, like I said, I want to get into details of his views on a lot of things, but it's just interesting to see, wow, here's a doctor, you know, one of the most famous doctors on the planet, saying that when he saw how Christians dealt with death, it, was, it blew him away. And, It made him research more and all these things. Now, it's kind of interesting because uh, that's a powerful testimony that the world's freaking out right now. Remember, Jesus said it would get so bad in the world that people's hearts would be failing them for fear of things coming on the earth. It's getting nuts out there, man. Geopolitically, with increases, Jesus said lawlessness would increase. Paul says, know this, last days, perilous or terrible times would come. You know, and just the rise of crime and evil men would wax worse and worse. Peter said there, in the last days, mockers would arise and they'd just become wicked. And, but guess what? He says for us, we're supposed to lift up our heads, right? Not freak out, but just put your trust in him knowing that your redemption draws near. Amen? So we look to him. But it's interesting. There's a lot of fear that the world has. And I love this passage here. He came to deliver us from the fear of death. Amen? And to save us from the penalty of our sins. Now, this is what's really interesting about Timothy, 1 Timothy, is I'm convinced that Timothy is dealing with, I believe, a couple different errors that have entered in the church. One is some Judaizers have come in emphasizing the law uh, and keeping the law to a degree. We've already studied that to a degree. But also there appears to be some form of proto-Gnosticism or incipient Gnosticism. Now, right now, you might be thinking, especially if you're not, you haven't really studied this, like, what's that? Well, I'm going to try to explain it a little bit, and that's why I thought, man, I don't want to go try to go through 18 pages of notes and just blaze with such an important subject here. But it's interesting because the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, even our English word know to know, gnosis, and gnosis simply means to know. It's a it's a okay it's it's a fine word. But the word was taken and made, there was a religion made out of it about having special knowledge. And many of these Gnostics, they worshiped the serpent. Some of them, like I think it was the Ophites, one of the Gnostic sects in the second centuries that the early church fathers had to deal with. They worshipped around snake holes and made made, made crowns out of snake reed, you know, snakes and so forth. And, and they they venerated a serpent, different Gnostic groups. Because the serpent gave knowledge to Eve from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it's really interesting because there were different Gnostic groups. The most probably sophisticated of them were the Valentinians in the second century. we're talking not not long after Christianity was just exploding in the first century after Christ had come and died and rose again. And the apostles who were huddled, mass shaking, were going to be crucified like him, then saw the resurrected Christ. Man, then they were bold as lions. They didn't even care if they died because they'd seen the resurrected Christ. It was being fulfilled. Wow. He spent 40 days with them, ate with them, and drank with them, and, and hung out with them, and showed them himself. And then they were just bold as lions. But it's interesting. The enemy is on the prowl. And the enemy uses various things to deceive. And there's a spiritual war. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not a war against humans. It's a spiritual war against dark, demonic, evil forces. Demonic spirits that put thoughts into our heads that seek to deceive us. And the Bible tells us there is a demonic realm from fallen angels that God... There's a lot of evil people. Well, there's evil angels. And God didn't wipe them out yet. He lets them manifest their rebellion to see who will follow and who won't in preparation for the judgment of the great day. But it's interesting paganism had always been a threat to god's people if i ask people what do you think the greatest sin was in the bible that's i should say not the greatest but the most prolific sin throughout the bible what is it and people can mention all kinds of things theft or lying or adultery or whatever but people usually will miss it it's idolatry idolatry is just condemned more than anything else throughout scriptures putting some things before god i mean the The first of the Ten Commandments is to have no gods before him. Why do you think it's first? The greatest of all the commandments, Jesus says, to love God with your whole heart, soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Amen? Amen. That's the deal. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said, and his his righteousness. And then uh, then God will take care of you, he said. So what's interesting, though, is paganism exalts all kinds. Almost every religion in the past had believed in many gods, right? And uh, the Bible's God is monotheistic. There's one God. And it's interesting because paganism was always a threat to the Jews throughout the Old Testament where they were being sucked into this false worship. But then when you come, and it's interesting, to Jesus being revealed, God revealing himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the gospel message is spreading throughout the world. Paganism wasn't enough. We don't want all your pagan gods. We've got Jesus Christ. He's resurrected from the dead. We're not going to fall for that. Ooh, the enemy's like, well, I'm going to have my way with you still i'm going to tempt you keep mind there's different temptations ways that Satan works one way is through temptation eliciting you to do evil so he can condemn you and say look god i'm not just that one bad guy look at this guy that's what he does with the world but the other way is false doctrine right doctrines of demons as chapter four the very next verse that we're not to yet says in the last days some will depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons So he uses false doctrines. So as I mentioned earlier, he transforms himself into an angel of light and brings a different Jesus. So now he's going to have to change up his paganism. How is he going to deceive these Christians? They're not just going to turn to all these different demon gods. They're not going to start worshiping Zeus and Apollo and all these Greek gods and Roman gods. They're beyond that. They came out of that. But guess what? Satan wants to bring a different Jesus, a twist on who Jesus is, a twist on his character, his nature, his personhood. Because if you can get, if I can get you to trust in the wrong guy, or so-and-so is going to pick you up to take you somewhere, and then somebody can deceive you into somebody, you know, nope, you're supposed to wait for this person. Don't get in the car with that person. You get jacked up, you'd be going the wrong way. So what happens is, is the Gnostics, where it was paganism blending itself with Christianity, and twisting the Christian message into what became Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a hybrid of pagan teaching which incorporated Christ into their teaching and made him into a different Jesus. Now, it was absolutely, and I must concede, it was absolutely brilliant. Gnosticism is absolutely brilliant in its deceptive and seductive power. Because this is what's, how can I, if I'm the devil, get you to think you're following Jesus, but get you to ultimately worship the devil? How can I do that? It seems impossible. Well, what the Gnostics were doing, and now I'm going to go into the second century, because that's when we see Valentinianism, we see more elaborate, there's various shades of Gnosticism. We know what the Gnostics taught, because we have the writings of Irenaeus, my favorite of the early church fathers, second century, who was a disciple of, of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John, who was discipled by Jesus himself, right? And Irenaeus has a, uh, five books he wrote against Gnosticism. You read, I've, I've gone through a lot of his writings, man, and my head spins because he's explaining all these various Gnostic cults and their beliefs because they were the greatest threat to the church. Because they could go back, like we can go back and look at, you know, almost, you know, what, almost 2,000 years of church history, can't we? Wow. They couldn't do that. Church is pretty new. And then you have the first church of Christ Gnosticism over here. And this, you know, whatever, you know, you have all these Gnostic churches claiming to be Christians. So how do you, you, you can't go and look at church history. Well, what you do have is something really heavy. You have Irenaeus is like, hey, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. He was saying that in the second century. Not long after Christ, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Ah, and he said, by the way, because the Gnostics were trying to use Scripture too. But he said, hey, I have a direct link huh, to Jesus through my disciple Polycarp, and his disciple, the Apostle John. And you guys are teaching contrary to what Christ taught. And he also had what he called, which is kind of interesting, because he was the, one of the first systematic theologians, Irenaeus. And he had what he called the rule of faith. But the early church was recognizing, hey, we have a rule of faith. And they had creeds already. And we already have a first century creed right here by the Apostle Paul in verse 16 that starts off, that's a common confession, that Christ was revealed in the flesh. Those words alone destroy Gnosticism. Why? Because the Gnostics had to get you away from the historic Jesus who paid for your sins. And he has to puff you up and get you to think that you could be a God. Which is exactly what. They, but how could he do that? I mean, that's, how's he, this is what he did. Well, the Valentinians, and then we're going to back up and you're going to start seeing Gnosticism being refuted right here in 1 Timothy in a minute. Incipient or proto-Gnosticism when it wasn't in full bloom yet. But the Gnostics, like the Valentinians, they taught, yeah, Christ, Jesus is good. He's, he, he's a focal point of our faith but it wasn't the Jesus of the Bible. It was the Jesus that Paul warned about, a false Jesus. And what they said was this. They relied, they got away from the word of God. They made up a cosmology, which I believe is like 1 Timothy 4.1, doctrines of demons. So I find it really interesting that right after verse 16, we get this declaration of faith. Paul warns about doctrines of demons coming. And it was being anticipated by the Holy Spirit through Paul to one degree or another. And being dealt with already in the first century. But this, what was what was proto or or incipient new would grow to this full-blown deal. And that's why I see the wisdom of God in writing, having 1 Timothy written. Second Timothy, the Gospel of John. By the way, Irenaeus said that God used John to write his gospel to, re, to refute Gnosticism. And I and I'm convinced, I'm convinced Irenaeus is right. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels, right? They're all very similar. Different, but similar. John is just way different. Amen? Same gospel, same Jesus and everything, but man, he, his emphasis is so different in some ways. And then you look at what he's emphasizing, and you see, ooh, wow. John was written later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John is seeing Gnosticism grow, and God knew it would. And Irenaeus, just boom, this is what, why God did this to John. This is all going to make sense. Some of the things I'm saying right now, and I mentioned that uh, you know, there's a problem with Judaism uh, coming into the church as far as the emphasis on you have to keep the law of Moses, which we're not under the law of Moses. Amen, we're under the new covenant. But there was also the emphasis of Gnostic lies and maybe a hybrid like you have with the Colossians. They were dealing with the heresy that most scholars agree was a hybrid of, of, of kind of a Jewish paganism. Uh, we don't know exactly what it looked like because we don't have their exact sayings other than what Paul tells us here in Timothy, which is enough to see, Ooh, man, that does look like proto-gnosticism And now you can see, because I'm just scratching the surface, but now I'm gonna get into more detail where it'll make start making more sense. The Gnostics taught that the Valentinians, who were the most sophisticated and the most well-known of the group, that that uh that salvation came not through Christ's death on the cross. His resurrection, his bodily resurrection, which they denied. But it came through gnosis, through knowledge. And Christ was a way-shower. Not the only way, but he was a way-shower. He was an eon, one of many emanations that come from this unknowable God called the ultimate depth. So it was this unknowable God called the ultimate depth who had a bunch of eons emanate from him and everything was pure spirit because the physical world, which didn't exist yet, would be totally evil. Everything physical, your, your body, creation, the cosmos, the moon, the stars, everything evil is physical. That's physical is evil. Well, how did he do that? How did they come to believe that? And a lot of the Gnostics believed that. The way they came to that conclusion was by stating that these eons that came off of those, the Valentinians said there were like 32 different eons that emanated from the ultimate depth, this unknowable being. And one of them, her name was Sophia. And Sophia wanted to get to know the ultimate depth and turned toward him and started going toward him. But it was forbidden. So the ultimate depth got really, he said, you know what? I'm not going to let her come to know me. I'm unknowable. And I'm going to create a mirror image of myself. And she'll go to that mirror image, which is kind of weird if he's pure spirit. Mirror image, can't know. It's just all kind of weirdness, right? And by the way, there's no scripture that's inspired the Holy Spirit, right? That's historically, you know, falsifiable one way or another. You know, this was just the thoughts that were coming from the spirit world, which were demonic entities. So it's kind of interesting that then Sophia goes toward this image, but then realizes she's been deceived by the ultimate depth. By the way, makes Gnostic God a deceiver, right? And then what she gets really ticked off, really upset. So she creates a wicked monster, <laughs> brings this wicked monster into being. And he has incredible, intense power, but incredibly low IQ. And his name is Yahweh. He's the God of the Old Testament. And Yahweh doesn't know that any beings exist besides Him. So He says, before me there was no gods for Him, neither is there to be after me, because He's supposedly ignorant. And Sophia creates Him. And then Yahweh decides to create the physical universe and create Adam and Eve and create the, the cosmos. And because He creates the physical universe, Therefore, the physical universe is what? Evil. So a lot of times if you read about Gnosticism, you'll read, if you read like an encyclopedia or something, it'll say, yeah, they believe that matter was was evil. But they a lot of times don't tell you why they believe matter was evil. (laughs) Because there was this abortive God that Sophia made, supposedly, that created the physical world. Therefore, since he's evil, and that he trapped the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in their flesh, and they were imprisoned, I mean, I did a movie called, a a documentary that if you haven't seen, you really should see it. It's called Hollywood's War on God. And I show you where directors, uh, it'll blow you away. You'll be tripping, you'll trip out, you know. There's a number of movies, Matrix and other movies I show you that are based on Gnosticism. In the Matrix, it's the AI traps everybody, right? They're trapped. And, you know, Keanu Reeves, he's going to set them free. He's the Savior, right? Anderson, son of man, he's the son of man, but it's a different Jesus. Because the way of salvation is not through the death of the Savior, but through Gnosis. And he basically tells the AI, he calls up at the end of the first movie, I'm going to let them know they can do what thou wilt. Or do their own, do what they want. Because guess what? Gnostics taught that you could rebel against the commandments of the creator, Yahweh, because he's an evil God. Therefore, you can reject him. And it was basically, this is, it was the beginning of Satanism. As we know it today, in fact, Lester Crowley, the, the most highly regarded Satanist of the last century or of all time, actually, uh, he had what he called the Gnostic Mass, you know. And Madame Blavatsky, she's probably the top female occultist of all time, says Satan is our redeemer; he's our savior, you know. And he's and they both say things like they bid Adam, you know, Eve to become gods. They're the saviors of the human race. Well, where are they getting these weird teachings? Way back to Gnosticism. So what happened is, Sophia felt really bad that she created Yahweh. And then she was like, I shouldn't have done that. Now look what he did. He trapped these human beings in these physical bodies. These bodies are prisons. I must set them free. And you know what? When people used to look at the early church fathers and say what they said the Gnostics believed, you know what a lot of people said? No, the early church fathers are putting words in their mouths. They didn't believe all this weird stuff. Then in, what was it, 1945 or so, through 47, they found the uh, Nag Hammadi Gnostic Gospels. And sure enough, I've read a lot of those Gnostic Gospels from a lot of them. And there it is, man. They taught all this weirdness. And they were claimed to be the true Christians. Yet the crazy thing is, Jesus Christ, the historical Jesus, He's based on being a descendant of King David coming in the flesh, amen? He's, the, he's prophesied to come by the Yahweh of the Old Testament, amen? So how can you claim him as your Messiah? Well, they basically tried to co-opt him, hijack him, and bring him into their religion. So this is what's crazy. The serpent. So Sophia's like, how do I set them free from Yahweh? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll channel the serpent, and I'll let them know to disobey Yahweh, and partake of the gnosis, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Gnosticism. Get the gnosis that they could be God, and they'll be set free from Yahweh. So Sophia channels a serpent. You shall be his God, knowing good and evil. Then they, they acquiesce, partake of the forbidden fruit, and then Yahweh against Satan, and Yahweh's got these strict rules. You know, you don't want to be slaves to Yahweh. You want to be set free by by. Sophia. So now think about this. Sophia now becomes the Savior, and Yahweh is the devil. But Sophia identifies with who? Who's the one that channeled the serpent? The devil. So all of a sudden the devil is worshipped in the name of Sophia, and Yahweh, the God who created everything, who gave you the very taste buds that you enjoy food with, becomes evil. Everything got inverted. Everything became upside down. So then if you look at the Gnostic Gospels, I mean, there a, uh, they found a Gnostic Gospel that's actually referred to in the, in, the, in the early church fathers, the Gospel of Judas. Ever heard of the Gospel of Judas? That was a Gnostic Gospel. And you read about it, Judas becomes a good guy because he sends Jesus to the cross because he's setting Jesus' spirit free from his enslavement in his body. Not because Jesus paid for our sins. Are you keeping up with me on this? crazy stuff. So the Gnostics said the flesh was evil, and there were two types of Gnostics, basically. There were several kinds of Gnostics, okay? But two in this sense. There were the ascetics, there were those who there were those who they all, most Gnostics believed the body was evil, fallen in not just fallen from not fallen from Yahweh, but fallen because it was created by Yahweh. So you had the ascetics and you had the libertines. There were two basic types, even though there was all kinds of different cosmologies within all these different groups. What am I saying? The ascetics were the ones that, were they're all saying the body's evil, the physical world's evil. So the ascetics were, anything to do with the body's evil. Don't eat animals, you know. Don't, don't, you know, don't procreate. Don't have children, you know. Everything, the, the physical world's evil. Then there were the libertines. Well, since the body's evil and we don't follow Yahweh, do what thou wilt. You can do whatever you want with your body. Anything goes. Just live it up and live for pleasure. So the ascetics denied pleasure. The liberties did do what thou wilt. That's where that comes from, man. Where the Christians were saying, no, we're created in the image of God. And God's good. You know? That's what all the historic Christian churches have taught. But the human being has fallen from God because we've rebelled against him, because we fell into Satan's snare and therefore our flesh is fallen. But God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, amen, to redeem us, and the body will even be resurrected and made like his body, because the body is actually good. It's just in a fallen state right now. So with that background, it's really interesting now. Now a lot of verses are going to come into play that are going to make some sense that may not have made sense, because I'm convinced until you understand Gnosticism, there's a lot of different parts of the New Testament that don't, make as much sense as they make when you understand what's being dealt with and this is where it gets really interesting is when you look at the scripture go to the last verse in first timothy the second last verse first timothy chapter six first timothy chapter six verse 20 look what the apostle paul says "O timothy guard what has been entrusted to you avoiding worldly and empty chatter And the opposing arguments of what is falsely called what? What is falsely called gnosis, knowledge. Avoid it. Guess what the Greek word for knowledge is, by the way, there? Gnosis. So he says, listen, he says, the second part of the verse, avoid, or the empty chatter, right? Avoid worldly and empty chatter. Worldly means not of God. It's empty, it's not true. And the opposing arguments of that which is falsely called Gnosis. So some kind of opposing arguments, and they were calling this, these opposing arguments Gnosis already in Paul's day. Now I find this super fascinating. Who was the early church father that wrote five books against Gnosticism? What was his name? Irenaeus, right? You read about Irenaeus. He was the top church father along with Justin Martyr in the second century, defending the church. You would not know the church as we know the church today if it wasn't for Irenaeus standing up against Gnosticism. Now, what's interesting, I find this so fascinating because uh, Irenaeus, and I find this really super fascinating, you know what his books were called? Anybody remember? Against Heresies. Very good, Mr. Mark Reiner. Against Heresies. His five books. Against Heresies. And then you'd look through it, it'd be like reading Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Colts. If you didn't know what Colts were, then you'd be like, whoa! But way beyond Kingdom of the Colts. Super, super in-depth. And what's interesting about it is, now I find this fascinating. In his Against Heresies, people always call it Against Heresies, and that's what it's called, Against Heresies. That's kind of the, the title we use. But you know what the subtitle was? Listen to this. And his subtitle, he borrowed exact words from 1 Timothy 6.20 that we're looking at right now from Paul. It was on the detection and overthrow of the falsely called gnosis or falsely called knowledge. Are you with me? So his against heresies, his subtitle was coming against exposing that which was falsely called knowledge, right from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Isn't that interesting? And then... When you go to a second of the five books, and you read the preface, which I looked at today, and I was like, this is so amazing. Listen to what he writes in the preface of book two. He says, in the first book, which immediately precedes this, exposing knowledge falsely so called. <laughs> he quotes Paul again. And the reference in the Church Fathers is 1 Timothy 6.20. I showed you, my very dear friend, that the whole system devised in many and opposite ways by those who are of the school of, the Val- of Valentinius. Valentinius got the name for Valentinius. Was false and baseless. A little bit further, he says, declaring at the same time the doctrine of Simon Magus. Remember Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8? Many of the church fathers viewed him as the, as the father of Gnosticism. He's a magician. Simon Magus of Samaria, their progenitor, he says. And of all those who succeeded him, I mentioned too the multitude of those Gnostics Uh, who are sprung from him. Now I find it really fascinating that I find it really fascinating as well that Tertullian, he's another heavyweight of the church fathers. He coined the term Trinity, okay? Maybe think of him that way. Uh, He was second, late second century into the third century. Tertullian Said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and you could go there, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul says, Nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which is mere speculation and so forth. Tertullian says that Paul, the apostle, was dealing with early forms of Gnosticism. In fact, it's interesting. Tertullian literally writes, and I quote him, which the inspired apostle Paul, by anticipation, condemned whilst the seeds of heresy were even then shooting forth. Isn't that interesting? He saw Timothy, he saw that Paul, through to Timothy, was dealing with Gnosticism when he was coming against the early seeds of that heresy in 1 Timothy 1-4 because of the endless genealogies and the mythologies and so forth. Because Gnosticism, I told you already about ultimate depth and Sophia and all that weirdness. It was mythology. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, people will want their ears to be tickled. They'll keep themselves teachers that it will tickle the ears, it will turn from truth to mythologies or fables, right? So it's interesting, Irenaeus, just like Tertullian, Irenaeus before Tertullian says the same thing, that in 1.4, Paul is dealing with an early form of Gnosticism. I find this all very fascinating because this is what they understood, or Irenaeus certainly understood, to be that which was falsely called Gnosis. Now, what about this endless genealogies, right? And these mythologies and so forth and, and the emphasis that Jesus came in the flesh, the very first thing on the list. Why such an emphasis? The Gnostics taught what? There were all kinds of mediators, emanations from the ultimate death, right? I mean, if you go watch my video, grab it called A Hollywood's War on God, you know? You go to the fellowship, you don't have to buy it. Just say, hey, Jim, Joe said I got a free copy of A uh, Hollywood's War on God. No problem. Pass it around, too. You guys, you'll trip out because you, you see all these top movies where there's these Gnostic, and I even quote directors and stuff. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's Satanism, folks, and it's very popular. It's rife within the music industry, within Hollywood and everything else. It's, it's a big form of, a big part of Satanism. Now, it's interesting, and, and, and I think it's important to study what the early church father said. I think it's important to understand spiritual warfare. It's important to understand culture, what's going on. And then look at the Bible and say, hmm, Lord, do you have anything to say? He says everything that the Word of God says is so relevant you to one, in one way or another. Uh, in, in the new covenant, when we look at God, what God says, it's like whoa, man! So this is crazy because they believe that there were these, you know, gene- they'd have these endless genealogies. They had genealogies of gods and genealogies of angels and all this weirdness. Genealogies of humans. Cain, who slew his brother, he was a good guy. Korah, who came against Moses and was swallowed up, you know, by hell, by Sheol, went to Sheol. Oh, Korah was a good guy, just like Judas, Gospel of Judas, was a good guy. So they took the evil ones, just like in Crowley's book, Diary of a Drug Fiends, the the, the drug fiends, the the Satanists are the good guys in that book, in that book of fiction. Because Crowley's a Satanist. So everything gets inverted. That's why you have the pentagram, stands for angels. Angels are called stars in the Bible. Inverted upside down. Fallen angels. You see the Baphomet and all that stuff. Even Anton LaVey points out that the word live in his satanic Bible is evil backwards, or the way is evil and live are backwards. Now, isn't it interesting because they taught that there were all kinds of different. You see, Jesus Christ, Christ Christ never became a man, they say, a lot of the Gnostics. Christ was an entity, one of these eons, that rested upon the person of Jesus. He, he, Jesus, Jesus himself wasn't the Messiah, the Christ. Christ was a different person. and just rested on Jesus, the carpenter. And then he left him at his, he came on him at his baptism and he left him before the crucifixion, depending on what Gnosis you talk to. Jesus Christ wasn't crucified for our sins. Christ came to use this person, Jesus, to just show Gnosis so we can be saved through knowledge and we can realize that we ourselves are all God. Yeah, crazy stuff but it just seduced a lot of people. Now this is what's really crazy about it too. Paul, why do you think Paul, read 1 Timothy 2.5. Might give you some insight as to why Paul emphasizes this. Are there many mediators? What does Paul say in 1 Timothy 2.5? For there is what? One God and what? One mediator. Right? One mediator. Not, not 32 eons. Not Sophia and Christ and all these different eons. But the true mediator is Jesus Christ, Lord of all, God who became a man, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead. Oh, and by the way, the Gnostics denied that God became a man. They denied that Christ, that Jesus Christ, they think the Christ Spirit just came on him. Jesus, he was just a man up to about age 30 or so. The Christ Spirit came and then it left for the crucifixion. No, the Bible doesn't say Christ Spirit came upon Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is the Christ. Amen. He is the Messiah. Amen. And that when he was conceived, you have God in the flesh. Now look at 2.5 again. It gets even heavier. Two five. Listen to this. For there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The what? The man Christ Jesus. I remember when I was a young Christian, I was first memorizing that verse. I love that verse. Wow. Coming out of Catholicism as a little kid, realizing, man, no, I'm not going to marry. I'm not going to pray to saints. I love this verse. You know, there's one meter between God and man, and the man, Christ Jesus. But you know what? I'd be, I, when I hit man, I'd be, man, man. Why does he say man? It kind of tripped me out when I memorized that verse when I was a young Christian. Why does he say man, Christ Jesus? Why do you say Christ Jesus? He's saying man for a reason. I don't know why you're saying man there, Lord, but I found out later. Now I know why he emphasized that he was a man. Because the Gnostics were saying there were many meters. God's saying no, one. And by the way, he did become a man. Amen. And he was revealed in the flesh. flesh. Verse 16. Now go to 1 Timothy 3, 16. And what does that first part say? By common confession, First Timothy 3.16. Great is the mystery of godliness, he who was revealed in the flesh. flesh. Do you see what's going on there? He's emphasizing that God became a man. And there's one mediator, one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. Because they denied the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Gnostics. I told you by the time we get done with this book, you'll never read it the same way again. You know what I'm saying? You'll say, whoa, man, now I see why Paul's emphasizing that. And then when I realized what Irenaeus was saying, right, and the early church fathers were dealing with, and what Timothy was dealing with, and dealing with proto-Gnosticism, and most commentators will bring up the viewpoint that a lot of people understand that Paul is coming against incipient Gnosticism. You know, most of them agree to one degree or another he is, to what degree is debatable. But man, he sure seems to be really giving a smackdown. We've already seen one mediator. He's a man. He came in the flesh, right? And we also saw Paul at the end of this letter talks about that, which is falsely called Gnosis. And then we have the testimony of the earliest church fathers or the the heavyweights of the church fathers, Irenaeus being the main one, Tertullian as well. So this is really, really quite uh, fascinating. By the way, the Gnostics taught, what did they teach about election? Does anyone remember? What did they teach about becoming a Gnostic? They taught that really, only the ultimate depth, really there's only a few chosen for salvation. God didn't want everybody. The Pleroma, which was their their heaven, only certain people were selected and predestined to have the special Gnosis because God really didn't desire everyone to truly be saved. That the Gnostics believed that there were just a few of them Few people that could become, you know, the elect. Ooh, man. Look at verse, remember where it says there's only one mediator between God and man. There's one mediator, not many. And he is the man, Christ Jesus. Look at the verse right before that and the verse right after that. Paul is destroying Gnosticism. First, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. It speaks of how God who desires who? Just the elect to be saved to say? Nope, all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Woo! He even uses the term knowledge of the truth. Because they thought the gnosis is just for a special elect group. And he says, nope, God wills all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Oh, and guess what? Look at verse six. Two verses. Right after one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a what? Ransom. A ransom for who? For all. Jesus died for everyone. Amen. Gave himself a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. And I love it, man, because the, to the uttermost and the guttermost people could be saved. That's how awesome our God is. Amen. In fact, go to 1st 1 Timothy 1:15. 1 look what Paul says. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, by the way, Christ Jesus what? came into the world. Think of that now. Think of that now. It wasn't Jesus came and the Christ Spirit rested upon him 30 years later at his baptism. Nope. It's Christ Jesus. All one package. All one person. Christ Jesus what? What's the very next few words? Came into the world. Are you with me? Christ Jesus Jesus was already the Christ when he was born. When he was conceived, came into the world. It's not this whole Gnostic thing where Jesus was born. He's just an ordinary man or a really good man. But guess what? The Christ Spirit rested upon him later as though, because it could never become flesh, it just rested upon him because flesh is evil. No, Jesus Christ came into the world. And the mission was to save sinners. And not just some of them, whoever would come. Even Paul, who calls himself the worst of all sinners. Man, you think you're a sinner? Paul called himself the chief of sinners because of what he was doing in the wicked life he was living before he found Christ. This book is full of hope and love. Amen? Amen. Now, are you still with me? It's it's just amazing when you think about it. Now, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul talks about, in 1 Timothy 4, the first few verses, that's where he says the Holy Spirit speaks expressly that the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. You know what he says they will teach? They'll teach, don't get married. Don't get married. They'll, they'll say, abstain from marriage. A lot of the Gnostics taught, don't get married. Don't procreate, because the physical world's evil. You don't want to bring babies into the world. Or you don't have to get married. You can just sleep with whoever. Those were the liberties, right? And don't eat certain foods. And the Lord said, you can eat whatever food you want, as long as you receive it with thanksgiving and prayer. Amen? But they're, no, no, don't eat animals, don't you know. No, that's not what the Lord says. So it's interesting when you look at what's going on here. In fact, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of who? David. David, according to my gospel. He's saying, hey... Jesus Christ rose from the dead physically. That counters Gnosticism. And guess what? Jesus Christ is a descendant of who? King David, according to the flesh. Amen? A physical human being. Not the Christ spirit emanated from ultimate depth, but Jesus Christ, born of a woman, a descendant of King David. Now, this is all oh, really fascinating to me because the Gnostic element can be seen in the same chapter because they were denying. The Gnostics would deny the physical resurrection of the body. If you look at Hippolytus, Irenaeus, Tertullian, a lot of the church fathers, they come against the Gnostics because the Gnostics denied that there would be a resurrection of the body. Well, they're against the body being resurrected. The body's evil, it's created by Yahweh. So they deny the resurrection. And the Gnostics would deny the resurrection of the believer. They would say, "Oh, the resurrection—that's just metaphorical. That's just spiritual. It's talking about only spirit is good. The flesh, the, the body, the created world's evil." Well, guess look at what these guys were teaching. Look at First, uh, look at Second uh, Timothy chapter two verse sixteen. Second Timothy chapter two verse sixteen. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Ooh, that sounds like the end of 1 Timothy 6 a little bit. But then look at verse 17. And their talk will spread like gangrene, like a wasting disease, like a cancer, some translations say. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Hymenaeus in the Greek, and Philetus. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying what? The resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. They're saying, oh, no, no, there's no physical. When you're, you're born again, you're resurrected. And it's true that when we're born again, we're spiritually risen, amen? But there's also a what? Physical resurrection, amen? And they were denying the physical resurrection from the dead. And that's what the Gnostics were doing. Isn't this interesting? Now, isn't it interesting that, they, that Aaron is saying, hey, Timothy, Paul through Timothy is coming against early forms of Gnosticism. And Tertullian is saying the first shoots of Gnosticism were coming up and Paul was dealing with that in First Timothy. And we're seeing Paul coming against that which is falsely called Gnosis. And we're seeing that Irenaeus, the subtitle of his books, are about that which is falsely called Gnosis. It's just all a blow But then Irenaeus says that John wrote his gospel different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke because he was refuting Gnosticism. And then I look at John and I trip out because guess what? In, jo- in the gospel of John, it's not the ultimate depth this unknowable God that you can't know. It's, if you see me, you have seen the Father, Jesus says. Amen. Amen. And John, when it starts out, Jesus, this isn't some emissary, some eon. In the beginning, the very first verse says, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the same was the beginning with Him. Amen. And all things were made by Him. By the Word. That is Jesus. And nothing was made but that which was, came to being but by Him. And then John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Are you with me? The Creator, who made everything, and nothing was made but by Him, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. Just destroying Gnosticism. And by the way, what does John say? Why did he write his book in chapter 20? These things are written that you might believe, right? That Jesus is the Christ. Amen? The Son of God. Not one of many sons of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His... One of his many eons? No, his only begotten son. That whoever, not just the elect, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Are you with me? Amen. It's so clear when you start seeing it. And then when you get to 1 John, whoa, man, the first couple verses, we saw him with our eyes. We touched him with our hands. The word, he says, the one that became flesh. There's three that bear witness, right? The word, the water, and the blood. He was human. And then what does John say? Many, many, many spirits. There are many spirits. In fact, go to 1 John chapter 4. You'll see it with your own eyes. It says, test the spirits, see whether they're from God or not. But in 1 John uh, chapter 4, Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that what? Confesses Confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, in the context is coming in the flesh there, is what? Not from God. This is the what? This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. You see, that spirit of Antichrist was already in the world. Amen? Amen? And it was teaching that Jesus is not the Christ. And guess what? We know from Aramaeus, who got this from Polycarp, that John the Apostle had to come against a false agnostic teacher. And they had public baths houses. That's where people would get cleaned up so often. And John said to his disciples, let us leave this bathhouse because the enemy of all truth has entered in. Serenthus was his name. And Serenthus taught, and we have his teachings from the early church fathers, that, that Christ's spirit just rested upon Jesus when he was 30 years old at his baptism and left him before the crucifixion. So Jesus Christ didn't die for our sins and it wasn't to pay for our sins. He's called the enemy of all truth. And John is combating that. And he calls it the doctrine of the Antichrist. And isn't it interesting that Satan is today the harbingers of the ultimate Antichrist, that the Antichrist will sit in the temple of God show himself that he is God and try to get people to follow him. But we don't have to follow him because we can know who the one true God is, amen? And we, and we don't have to be deceived. You see, go to 2 John. 2 John. 2 John, verse 7. You see what chapter? You may or may not want to call it a chapter. 2 John just has a chapter if you want to call it a chapter. Look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge what? Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far, like the Gnostics, and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Gnostics, he's saying don't have God. And if they read that, hopefully they'd fall on their face and repent and say, God have mercy on me. And he would have mercy because even the chief of sinners was saved if they repented. They do not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what? The teaching that if someone doesn't confess Jesus Christ, has come in the flesh, that they're not of God. Do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Wow, that sounds really harsh. It is. Because they were trying to ins- cause insurrection in First John chapter two, verses verse eighteen, 19, verse nineteen, I think it is. He says they came, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. And he warns the true believers: Don't be deceived, because they're seeking to seduce you. Let that remain in which you. Which, verses twenty-four through twenty-six of First John chapter uh, two. Let that remain in you which you heard from the beginning, which is the gospel. If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, you'll continue in the Father, the Son. Okay, and you'll receive the promise, eternal life. I'm writing these things, he says, concerning those who are trying to seduce you. That's what these Gnostics. Well, guess what? Hollywood's filled with Gnostics, man. Okay? Watch, if you haven't seen our, our exposés on Marvel and DC, a lot of these top writers are Gnostics. Alan Moore, he's the top writer, uh, the last voted last two times for four-year terms as a top writer in all of comics. By the comics by the polling on Comic Book Review. And he calls himself a Gnostic. He wears a, a, a Glycon, a, a, a Gnostic god, in his ring. And he says he does Crowley's magic, and that's how he channels all these things that become some of these top comics, the Watchmen and so forth. It's a spiritual war, guys. We're in a spiritual war. And when the Antichrist comes, he'll deceive many. But we don't have to be deceived. What I find really interesting, in 1 John chapter 4, when he says, when he talks about he that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, right, he's not of God. Do you know in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense? That means come in the flesh, when it, he comes in the flesh, is in the perfect tense, it means, it, a perfect tense is an action that begins and has an ongoing effect. In other words, he's still in the flesh. He's risen from the dead. Amen? Amen. And then when you read Second John, verse 7 through 9, when he says, look at verse 7, for many deceivers have caught co- in the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Do you know coming there is in the present tense, which is even stronger than, I guess, in the perfect tense, because this is after the resurrection. He's still in the flesh, he's saying. When Jesus rose from the dead and Thomas was like, I won't believe unless I can stick my fingers in his wounds, what did Jesus say? Stick your fingers in my wounds, Thomas. See that I am he. Remember when they saw Jesus in Luke chapter 24? They saw him and they're like, they thought, because he's risen, they're like, what in the world? They thought they saw a spirit. And Jesus says, see and and touch me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And then he said, do you have anything to eat? (laughs) And they gave him some honeycomb and he ate it. Come on, guys. So when Jesus Christ comes back, he has a glorified heavenly body that is risen and immortal. It says imperishable. Amen. It says we will be like him. Amen. But we don't have to be deceived because if someone, because right now in the New Age movement, which is New New Age is Gnosticism, but now they worship the creation. They worship trees. It's like, wait a minute. They hated They hated creation. In Satanism, there's nothing sacred. It's just all lies, right? So now you can worship creation. Wait a minute, you Gnostics hated creation. Well, now we worship it. Anything to keep you away from the one true God who made creation. Because there's nothing sacred in Satanism. But when Jesus Christ comes back... Now, right now, there's been full-page ads. I've sh- I played a long time ago a video by Benjamin Krem, who's trying to get people all over the place. You know, f- Commercials and full-page ads. Chicago Tribune, the New York Times over. The Maitreya here. The fifth Buddha, you know, the last Imam. He's come in different ways. Krishna, Christ, the Jewish Messiah. He's basically for everybody and you just got to follow him. He's on the planet now. That's not Christ, okay? When this world savior comes and sits in the temple of God, he's the deceiver the Bible calls the Antichrist. And it says he'll sit in the temple of God claiming that he is God. And he'll exalt himself over anything that is called God. But when Jesus, you'll know that's not Jesus, because when Jesus comes, it says it'll be like lightning shining from the east to the west, amen? And according to Revelation chapter 5, he looks like the lamb that has been slain. He still bears his scars, amen? And we'll be caught up to meet him in the air, amen? You won't have to go to Jerusalem. You will have to bow down before a TV scene, some guy on TV saying he's the Christ. It'll be the false Christ, the ultimate antichrist. Stick to Jesus. It's important that we understand these things. Do you see how we can just spend a whole lot of time just on this topic? But did you get a good feeding today? Okay, hopefully it's eye-opening because we are in a spiritual war. And when you come to a little verse right there, I tell you guys, man, sometimes, well, how come, Joe, sometimes I spend so much time on one? Aren't you glad we did? Because there's a lot going on, man, in this Bible. And next time you read, read 2 Timothy later, 1 Timothy, and you're like, whoa, I remember we went through this. Oh, wow." Wow, Paul is dealing with Gnosticism here. And guess what? I love what Tertullian says is that Paul was anticipating by the Holy Spirit He's even prophesying about these doctors and demons that will come in the latter times. And it was just on the heels of that that this thing just blew up and became the greatest threat to the church. Brothers and sisters, guess what? You are dealing with the remnants of Gnosticism right now. You're dealing with the remnants of Gnosticism, which is now full-blown like it's never been before in what's called the New Age movement today. When you go to the occult section of a bookstore, it's all come out of, the, you know, probably is considered the cornerstone of the, of the occult. Oh, but you even have vestiges of it in Calvinism because Augustine was a Gnostic. And Augustine blended his Gnosticism with Christianity and became the father of the Roman Catholic theology. Although they, did. they they skipped over a bunch of his Gnosticism, though, but a lot of the Calvinists bought into it because guess what he taught? The elect are just a few that God wants, and those are the ones he truly wants to save, but he created everybody else because he wants to damn them by his decree, okay? And salvation's only for the ones that Jesus died for, and, and ultimately it's just gonna be the elect. And guess what? Uh, people are predetermined to be saved, but God leaves the rest for damnation. And another interesting teaching among a lot of our Calvinist friends, not just Calvinists now, it's spread to others, is preterism. The resurrection's already taken place. There's no physical resurrection. Jesus Christ already came back. We're already in the new heaven and new earth. Just enjoy it, because prophecy's already been fulfilled. These are—that's called preterism. It's a huge lie. That's full preterism. Okay, so be be aware and uh, let's let's uh, rise and say a prayer. Father God.